Welcome, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Ben's Den, our monthly podcast, where we bring in guests to talk about things that matter with people that matter in healthcare. So my very excited about today's guest, Mike Lane, who is the CEO of Redeemer Health System in Pennsylvania. Mike, welcome. It's great to be with you. Mike, thanks again for taking the time to talk to me today. Today's topic is special for me because... My foray into healthcare almost two decades ago was in the hospital and health system sector, building solutions, technology-driven solutions for hospitals. So I'm really excited to sit down with you and uh, talk a little bit more about what's happening in this segment of our industry. So let's start with the, the current state of hospital operations, right? And I know it's a very loaded topic. There's a lot to unpack. But I want to kind of use a framework to help us navigate through it, right? So we can use the best use of everybody's time here. Let's start with staffing and labor dynamics, right? I'm sure that's been front and center in your mind as well. Uh, we talk to other health systems and we see them dealing with staff shortages, staff burnout, tension issues and whatnot. How has Redeemer Health come at it? What's been your posture on dealing with this very turbulent issue? First and foremost, I just want to say that I've been amazed at how frontline staff and, and all of the support staff, too, have just continued to be there to meet the demands of that, that's been placed upon them over the last yeah. few years. So, yeah. you know, to continue to do that without burnout, as you said, or the stress yeah. that it brings to you, is just an amazing challenge. So my, my hat's off to not only our, our teams, but everybody that I talk to around the country. It's just been amazing about how they, the commitment, the dedication and the resilience of staff. Um, yep. So one of the things that we've done is, is really thought about what is it that the staff needs or wants around their wellness? So we have actually a, a wellness at work program. The other thing that we realize is they may want more flexibility. Now, we're not mm. here in total, but I think mm. giving them, you know, more flexibility is key. Um, early on, we know that a lot of our staff really want daycare. So we've got a robust daycare program, you know, for, for staff that, that so that they've got access to, to daycare. We haven't been able to do everything for them. Obviously, we've changed compensation models. We've had all types of premium pay models. We've used more agency than I ever thought we would use. And I don't fault anybody for that yeah. because, you know, if you've got an opportunity and we've had people jump to agency, if you've got an opportunity to jump to agency and you can basically pay off all your debt from education, why, why not do that? So we always leave the door open for yeah. folks who say basically maybe are a little tired of being on the road or going through an agency program, you know, let's let them come back. But we're not out of it yet. Yeah. We're beginning to see the end, the amount of expense that we've got associated, you know, with labor and staffing is just it's obviously continuing to exceed our budget. So from a hospital standpoint, even though our volumes are greater than pre-pandemic, if you look mm. at, you know, inpatient, outpatient, ambulatory, you know, the, the cost of staffing has basically put us in an operating a negative operating position. At this point, yeah. I don't necessarily uh, you, see that changing either in the short run. Okay, good to, good to know, uh, Mike. And you're absolutely right. I want to echo your sentiment on the frontline workers. Uh, I absolutely believe that we as a country wouldn't have dealt with the pandemic the way we did if it was not for 
the commitment on the front line. You know, uh, it could have been a lot worse. And every single day, I think we all owe it to them. So we safely are in a what we could define as a post-pandemic work, right? Let's talk about revenue and growth, right? Obviously, that's front and center in your mind as well. I read about, you know, this, this $40 billion plus uncompensated care that hospitals across the country have to assume, uh, you know, patient volume shortages obviously are are, are a factor in, in terms of how you control revenue, CMS reimbursement that fluctuates with inflation pressures and whatnot. And I just I was just looking at this Rock Health report lately where all the top health systems in the country have reported uh, losses. And like you said, the expenses more than net revenue. So what's your posture on it? How is Redeemer Health able to sustain the current times and what's, what's in the outlook? I wish I could tell you the outlook is positive. I think the key is what is it going to take to get to yeah. basically back to a positive margin? So I, I, I'll just make a couple of comments. One, the increase in the amount of government paid patients, it's just I'm so staying in the hospital now, it continues to rise mm. for a couple of reasons. One, the aging of the population in our market, but the aging of the population across the country. So that moves them into Medicare. Medicare, when you look at a, uh, a medical patient for us, doesn't make money. It loses mm. money. The other thing is more surgery is moved from inpatient to outpatient, which is yeah. absolutely a good thing, but we get reimbursed less. Mm. Yeah. Sure is if you just think about, you know, I know people are saying, gee, we get plenty of money, but if you get a two to a half, two and a half percent increase as of January 1st, when your costs are going up between eight to 15%, yeah. the numbers just don't work. Yeah. The other thing that is really happening, in my opinion, is you, can, you can't expect to continue to shift those subsidies for Medicare and Medicaid to the commercial insurance side. Yeah, yeah. Because there's employers there and they've got clients that are just basically saying, wait, wait a minute, we can't afford to pay that as well. We don't, and I, but I don't think most people understand yeah. they've been subsidizing Medicare to some extent and Medicaid significantly over the past, you know, 25 years. So the model is going to have to change. When when I learned about this a few years ago, how payers tend to subsidize what they, they the hits they take on Medicare and Medicaid onto the commercial side of things is it was just mind boggling for me the the burden that's pushed into a different segment you know um, yeah. and it just felt very unfair in terms of the balance but I think that's you're absolutely right that's a that's a challenge that we as an ecosystem had to figure out so there is more normalization of the costs across the sector something related to that and you mentioned the post pandemic volumes right volumes are up but expenses are up do you see that as are the new reality uh, in a post-pandemic world or do you expect the overall utilization to go back to pre-pandemic uh, levels i think the overall utilization at least from my perspective is back to pre-pandemic levels okay now. it's just okay. in different sectors so what used to maybe be an inpatient hospitalization stay is now an outpatient stay you Got know it. what basically can be done in sort of a, the home or even basically in a, in a lesser care setting is changing. So I think we've got to move from a model that it's all about volume to basically moving to a, a model that basically is looking at how do we manage the health of an individual or a population? And then we need to transition from a fee-for-service model to basically one that pays us basically a fee-for-service, but also lets us participate in the upside around the premium that basically is 
being provided to either insurers or that and or ACOs like we're involved in an ACO. So we actually you know, have access to what, in fact, that level premium is that comes into us. And if we manage it effectively, you know, we share savings with the federal government. So I think we, the key is we've got to move from, let's not focus on admissions to the hospital or outpatient procedures. We've got to focus on how do we effectively manage the health of that individual with them and their primary care physicians and whoever's part of that, that care team. And that, by the way, starts whether you're a mom that's pregnant or whether you're an individual with diabetes or whether you're 80 years old and you're in a senior community. It's all about managing the health of that person and and keeping them out of the True. And in fact, you know, that's you're absolutely in fact, that's a big one of the things that we absolutely admire about Redeemer Health and our partnership is your commitment to that. The the focus around value and holistic care versus looking at volume and services being rendered and whatnot. So kudos to you. I, I think it starts with you as a CEO of the organization to set the tone. And I think you've done a fantastic job with your entire organization. So uh, thank you so much for you know, allowing to be a a case study and a blueprint on how to participate and succeed in value-based care. Something related, Mike, and this is just something that I've been dwelling on. You know, if you look at the hospital spectrum, right, and you say and you look at some of the larger hospitals like HCA, for example, who apparently have 27% of the hospital share amongst all their facilities, it almost seems like they have the DNA to weather all these trends, all the post-pandemic realities and the dynamics around, you know, staffing and whatnot. And the mid to small hospitals, that sector, the mid to small sector, they seem to be struggling for survival. Is that a fair read? Is that, would you agree with that kind of duality of the hospital uh, ecosystem? Well, I think it's it's almost, are, they, is, is, are you too big to fail? And so yeah. does somebody basically... Yeah able to then garner a better contract rate, you know, from the insurers. But but I would tell you also there's sharing infrastructure over, mm. you know, a larger base too. So the thing from from my perspective, what we've all got to do is figure out how to basically share infrastructure and or partner with the right folks so that your infrastructure is is the least cost. Shared, yeah. Product, yeah. But still providing you the data or the information you need in order to basically manage the populations you serve. Clearly, I mean, we're one of those. We're a single a single hospital. We have investments in ambulatory services and one of those ambulatory facilities is an all orthopedic or neuro mm. hospital that used to have inpatient, but it's all outpatient. And they were able to quickly make the change to be an all outpatient facility, but could demonstrate their value, not only to the insurers, but um, you know the public. And so they're doing fine. Um, I don't necessarily think having more hospitals is necessarily the answer, unless right. those hospitals also have what I'll say a population health strategy too, or right. Right. You know, they are the 70% player in a particular market, so they're still getting paid a percentage of charges. Right. And, you know, the all the keywords you mentioned as, as I, I talk to you and, and listen to you, uh, it just speaks to the the strength of the strategy that we have uh, in place with your organization. Now, we covered four dimensions, Mike. We talked about staffing and labor. We talked about the turbulence in revenue, the realities of uh, the post-pandemic world, and the overall constitution of the hospital sector in general. Just being 
kind of like biased in this question. How do you see data and technology playing a role in helping hospitals across the country basically not only combat the challenges, but also prepare for growth, prepare for the, the future? What role do you see data and technology playing as you journey on? Again, I think technology for us, I'll just use one example and then I'll go into data. One example, because of technology, we can do acute care in the hump. Mm. Okay, mm. we couldn't do that before because of yeah. the integration of, and the availability of technology to support somebody in a safe way in the yeah. home. We don't we can admit people to the home. Yeah. That's and I think that's going to continue to increase on the data side. Again, and it goes back to from my perspective, if you've got good data, that's yeah. timely and that your physicians, the primary care physicians, especially, but all physicians trust it. Okay, then you can get them because they think like scientists. You can yeah. get them to basically say, you know what, I need to do this differently, or I need to do this better, or I need to get my patient involved with nutrition services earlier, or behavioral health services earlier, or by the way, I need to improve my documentation. All of those things, in my opinion, are critical to the future because then otherwise you're not going to be able to take risk or even share risk or be in value-based agreements with, with insurers, or for that matter, with employers. We have one employer that basically uses us because they know, because we share information with them, data, that if they mm. use our health system for orthopedics, they get mm. great outcomes, but they pay less. Yeah. The same thing on OB and deliveries. They use us, and basically they know the data is there, that they pay less. Now their insurer can't basically give them, quote, the benefits of that. So actually, we give them rebates. We Got set it. up. We, we, they get they, the insurer pays us basically what they would normally pay us. But because they've designed their system to their their employee health plan to basically use us on a preferred basis, they get great experiences for their employers, employees, and dependents. They get great outcomes, and by the way, they save money. So yeah. I, I yeah. think those, that's just some of the things I'm thinking about data. But I have to tell you, you got to have. It's got to be easy to access. Everything yeah. you know has to be yeah. connected and the users have to basically trust it. Yeah, so absolutely. I'm, I'm going to give kudos to my team because I've got a group of people that that's all they do is spend time with the physicians and others, basically making sure that they've got the data that they need or they have the support they need, in fact, to be the best that they can be. And all of our physicians that are associated with with us, I think, embrace that. And and by the way, financially do well from that as well. Our our issue is, are we big enough? I know I'm going on here. Sorry about that. No, 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 please, please go ahead. Yeah. We, you know, our issue is, are we big enough to deal with the infrastructure going forward? And are we big enough to basically have a sufficient number of lives that are connected to us, both on the Medicare side, the Medicare managed care side, the dual side, and then the Medicaid side. And so for us, we we believe partnerships are critical to that going forward. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I think the first point I do want to absolutely give kudos to your team, Mike. There's, I can't think of any other team that at least we engage with that's more data obsessed 
than your team is. I think that's a big, that's been a big reason for our combined success and your perspective and on how tech and data can come together to define the realities of tomorrow is just extremely inspirational. And switching gears to your infrastructure, your comment on shared infrastructure and partnerships, let's reflect a little bit on what's happening around us, right? And I personally have been watching this recent vertical integration as the industry defines it and the intensity around it. Just to give you some examples, this new term called pay wider, uh, which some of our customers have engaged my thoughts on. And if you look at what United is doing with Optum as its uh, front-end strategy, what Humana did with Cano Health, or what Cigna taking a stake in Village MD, or you know, the the 10,000-pound gorilla in CVS Health going in and making massive investments in Aetna, Signify, Oak Street, and Amazon's acquisition of One, One Medical. Where, where do you see this, this kind of like, you know, enterprise-level behemoths coming together and trying to impact healthcare top-down when, in my opinion, Mike, healthcare is bottom-up. The realities of healthcare are are grounded and unless you have a bottom-up approach i feel like you know there are a lot of initiatives in the past from google microsoft some of these larger uh, big tech companies that have not played out as well as it was intended because the approach was top down versus bottom up what what's your thought on the vertical integrations happening around us and where do you see this going i'm uh, i'm i'll just talk about one i'm fascinated okay. by the and i could talk about others but i'm fascinated by cvs health Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, they've got a distribution network already of pharmacies that are in close proximity to a lot of the population. And so I think using those sites and, and yeah. technology, you know, for not just basically as potentially complementary to other primary care physicians within markets. So instead of being competitive to be complementary, you know, to them and, and create partnerships with them. I, I think they've got the potential to be, you know, very successful because all of the, the lives in, or people, they're, they're still going to be wanting to be attached, you know, to a, a primary care physician. Now, I, I'm not going to tell you it's virtual health for everything, but I think depending on your health, you, sh you really want, in my opinion, to have access to somebody that's sort of coordinating things for you. And that's that primary care physician. Right. Um, not as much the specialist, but somebody like CVS Health. Who's, who's got, you know, the virtual capabilities to sort of complement, you know, the, the, those primary care physicians when they're not available. And then right. basically also offer them, you know, potentially virtual behavioral health and a whole host of other things. I, I think that's going to be something that it could be very good, okay, yeah. for, uh, you know, for healthcare in this country. I, I think the biggest risk, actually, for healthcare in this country is the hospitals or systems that don't see themselves as a cost. And I think flip, whereas, again, because if you think about it, and I'll remember his name was Lynn Abramson, and he started U.S. Healthcare okay, a long, long time ago and sold it to Ed. I remember him saying to me, you never pay for a hospital if you don't have to, because it's cheaper to lease it and you don't have the risk associated with it. So if you can cut a contract with that, yeah. even if it's got other upsides in it, but you don't have that risk of a hospital, you're much better off. And you know what? I think Lynn was way, and he was a pharmacist by training. He was way ahead of the curve. And again, that's, that's just where I see things. So I, no, I, are all of them going to work? 
No, but I mean, if you think of United and Optum, you know, they're in MySpace now too because they're buying home care companies, right? Mm. Mm. Um, so to me, that's a smart move on their part because clearly being able to manage people in the home and to get somebody to the home, even if they're not covered by the insurance, to find out really what's going on for that per- with that person or the right data. Yeah. You've got the predictions that if, that if you don't see that person post-discharge immediately the same day or the next day, that their odds of a readmission are higher. Yeah, you know, yeah. absolutely. absolutely. So I see them doing home care for that's one of the reasons yeah, I think I mean, it, you know it, it, when we go to people's homes that what they i could go on on this what they tell us sometimes <laughs> isn't the case and so home care folks are really good at making sure is that home really got the the ability to take care of this person safely do they have the support systems and a lot of times they'll find other meds at home that nobody knew about so yeah. I, I see all of these things being like the data and predicting that but then when to send a home care nurse out for free is being probably key and that's one of the reasons i'm sure optum wants to do they haven't told me that but (laughs) yeah i think the the whole hospital at home you know initiative has a lot of merit to it and we are involved in a couple of use cases around it mike just thinking about it from a patient's perspective right do you believe these vertical integrations are going to generate more value-based care outcomes or is it going to be influenced by revenue, profitability, and maximizing shareholder value, because that's the name of the game for these large enterprises, right? So do you, do you see a conflict or do you see an alignment there? Clearly, if you're a for-profit enterprise or not-for-profit enterprise, you've got to make, not-for-profits have to make operating margins. They yeah. just reinvest it. You know, for-profits have, if they're a stockholder company, they've got shareholders. So they're obviously doing this to basically, you know, generate profits. I do believe at the same time, though, I think if it's done right, they can basically uh, benefit their clients or their or their members, but also still make a, a reasonable margin. The question is, what's that reasonable margin? I've been following and we've signed up with uh, Devoted, which is uh, a new Medicare managed care program, but it's the fastest growing one around the country. And basically they are focused on the client and making sure the client gets amazing service because and, and, and great outcomes. Um, right. They're also focused on, they, they don't want to do it and not make money. But I think the two are, two could be, I guess, complementary or maybe the better word is a line. Mm. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, for me, and I've been doing this maybe too long, I, I have to tell you, I go back to the, this sounds, the group health cooperatives, where basically the owners of the plan we're the members. And you know what? In some ways, I think that's where it probably is going to need to go back to, where right. the owners of the plans are the members. They've, we've all got aligned interest. And, you know, they get dividends or reductions in their, uh, you know, their premiums if, in fact, they're they're doing all the things they need to do for their health as well. So and maybe that's just not realistic, but uh, that's my optimism. Uh, awesome. You know, forward. Let's look into the future. We both are hoping that the future of medicine is value-based and yep. person-centric yep. and community-focused. What role do you see hospital and health systems playing in that ideal state of the healthcare that we all deserve? To rephrase, what does the hospital of the future look like for you? I believe the hospital of the future is going to be focused on population health for the members or patients that are aligned with them. Yeah. And it and it's all then going to be about making sure that you're continuing to demonstrate that you're bringing value to them and great, great outcomes, but great experiences. Yeah. So you're almost going to sit there. And at one time we looked at it and said, you know, for our size organization, 
you know, we believed that we had to have between 300,000 and 400,000 people aligned in a mix of, of, of ages. Um, right. And I think that's really what you're going to need because not everybody needs to be basically be doing tertiary quaternary care. You know, you're still going to want basically to have choices and use who, who the best place is, you know, depending on the situation. But, you know, more things are going to be able to be done in that, what I'll say, that community delivery system. So again, I think focusing on top line revenue as, as premium revenue and yeah. if you look at the health systems that are the most successful right now, they will end up being very successful. Got it. And but you're absolutely right, Mike. In fact, I guess so. I don't mean to, it's not the hospital that's the top of the food chain. Yeah. They're clearly a critical part of it. Yes. Yes. But they're not at the top of the food chain. Yes, you're absolutely right. In fact, somebody when somebody asked me the same question, my posture on it was that I believe the hospital of the future is one that has no walls or boundaries, right? And is a intentional participant in community care. Yep. I think Great. that's the best way for hospitals to, you know, break down the walls, come into the community and let the value-based metrics play out. I think everybody wins. In that equation, everybody wins. You, you know? said it best. I, I agree a thousand percent with you. It's awesome. yeah, it, and we've all, you, you don't want a hospital with walls and you never had. I one of uh, you know, one of our colleagues basically said that a long time ago. So again, if you look at our organization, it's a little unique and different. We started out actually in home care. Yeah. We moved from home care to post acute care or skilled care. The last thing we got into was the hospital. And then we moved obviously to ambulatory and creating networks of primary care physicians in a population health strategy. I think the future is basically the pop health strategy with home care and the right post acute care could be the most important parts of the quote food system or that community care model. Right. Because when you're in a skilled care facility with us, we're guests in your home. Yeah, yeah, get it. I get it. Mike, thank you so much for joining me on this quick broadcast, but I'm not letting you go unless I ask you a fun question. You ready for that? This is this is going to be the toughest question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If you could have any job in the world, what would it be and why? Any job in the whole world. Any job in the whole world. That's a uh, that's a difficult question. <laughs> um, I warned you. You did. You did. But you said it was going to be fun, too. And I always ask people, you know, <laughs> on the same thing, are you having fun in your current job? And I, and yeah. I would tell you, believe it or not, 90% of the time, I'm having fun. What I'm thinking about from my perspective is how um, I transition my role here uh, to others within a phenomenal leadership group that we're going to partner with. And then actually the fun that I'm going to have is basically being involved in activities that um, are going to cause more disruption. Absolutely. I, I'm not going to get specific, but it's basically things that are going to be more disruptive to basically accelerate where we need to be from a community care model of, of health. I can't wait to see you that, Mike, and I can't wait to be partnered with you on it. Um, and there's nothing more fun than changing status quo. There's nothing more fun, right? So I agree. And and that's one one thing I, I've been blessed be, to be able to to do that, where people, you know, have not thought about things, you know, traditionally. And, and I've got a great, besides a great group of people around me, a great group of uh, of trustees. But and I do have to do a call out. There's a group of women that founded this health system, and they're open to everybody. It doesn't matter what faith you are 
or if you've done awesome. that thing. Awesome. And I think they've been the ones that always have said you put the individual in the middle, the person in the middle, and you design everything around around them. it. Yeah. And I think that's kept me focused, but it's definitely something that I believe we all should be doing. Awesome. That's that's uh, that's a great way to end this podcast. Mike, thank you so much for your time. More power to you. The very best of luck to you. And I can't wait to disrupt more with you. <laughs> me too. Thank you so, so much. Thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure.